as those kids are heading back, you can turn with me to the book of Galatians. We are nearly finished with our sermon series in the book. We are drawing towards the end. We are midway through the final chapter, chapter 6. So you can turn with me to Galatians 6. We'll be looking at verses 6 to 10 this morning. And as we're doing that, let's bow our heads and start with a word of prayer. Lord, on a day set aside on the calendar to honor fathers, we want to give honor to you. And we want to recognize that you, in your kindness, treat us far better than we deserve. That your love, your steadfast love, your faithfulness, know no ends, that your graciousness to us in Christ Jesus is immeasurable, and Lord, that we recognize that you are our Father, and that in Christ, through faith, you not only save us from our sins, you not only promise us heaven, you promise that we are your sons and daughters, that in Jesus Christ, we know adoption that the great high king of the universe is also our heavenly father. Lord, we thank you for that. Help us to remember that. Help us to live in the goodness of that. Lord, now I ask that you would help us as our father, that you would do the things that a good father does, that we know you will do, that you would teach us, that you would feed us, that you would protect us, that you would guide us through the preaching of your word. So, Father, would you send your spirit to build up your children that we might rest more securely and thankfully in the Father's love. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, look with me to Galatians chapter 6, starting at verse 6. One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone especially to those who are in the household of faith. As we look at these verses in Galatians chapter 6, I want us to keep in mind this morning the context. We've been talking about context the last few weeks, and it's important to remember that this follows Galatians 5.25, where Paul has encouraged those community, that community of churches, those churches in South Galatia, and he encourages us that if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. In other words, he's instructing local churches, the body of Christ, believers gathered in the name of Christ, that when they gather, when they pursue community, and when they pursue fellowship, they should do that with an eye towards being under the sway of the Spirit, to walk according to the Spirit's leading. And within that, he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And then in verse 2 of chapter 6, bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Well, I believe that those ideas are still present in the text that we're looking at this morning. Those ideas are still 
under the surface. They're still driving what Paul is now talking about when he looks at this idea this morning that we'll look at of reaping and sowing, that you reap what you sow. That's sort of the big idea that he has in this text, that as you walk through this life as a believer, as you continue on waiting for Christ to return, you will reap whatever it is that you sow. And he's writing that to us, and he's telling us that specific truth because he wants us to understand that in the context of a community seeking to walk by the Spirit. So there's a connection between this idea of reaping and sowing and a community walking by the Spirit, walking guided by the Spirit, under the influence of the Spirit. So that's what he has in mind for us. I want us to think through the implications of that. You reap what you sow. I think there's several implications we see in the text. The first is that if you reap what you sow, we should be careful to sow into faithful teachers. With a mindset towards reaping what you sow, a a community that is in step with the Spirit will be intentional to sow into faithful teachers. We see that in verse 6. Let the one who is taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. He's obviously speaking here to the pastors in the midst of churches. And we see that he specifically has in mind the nature of their teaching because he doesn't call them elders or pastor. He refers to their teaching role. So he has specifically in mind here the nature of reaping and sowing as it pertains to teaching and the need and the call for the church to provide for the financial care of those who do teach. I remember growing up, my pastor using this illustration and telling it as a joke. We had another young man in our church who asked him after church one Sunday, just walked up to him, and my pastor's name was Pastor Roger, Reverend Raj. I knew nobody called him Reverend Raj. <laughs> but walked up to him, and this young man you know, said, Pastor Roger, how many times a week do you golf? And, you know, my pastor was kind of taken back and said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, I, I saw you golfing this week at the golf course, you know, on like Monday or Tuesday during the day, probably his day off. And the young man was struck by the fact that his dad was at work, but the pastor was at the golf course. And so he asked, you know, how many times a week do you work? You know, after you get done preaching on Sunday, after you get done working on Sunday, the implication being Sunday is the only day that you work. How many times do you get to go to the golf course? And I think this guy's, you know, this young man's mind was kind of turning and saying, you know, maybe this is a pretty good gig. (laughs) You get up and you work, and it really only appears that you work for about an hour and a half, two hours on a Sunday morning. And then you can kind of golf whenever you want to. Maybe go fishing if that's that's your cup of tea. Well, that sense, I think, lurks there for a lot of people. We just got done with Galatians 6.5 here in the exhortation for the individual responsibility in the context of community life. Remember? He calls us to bear one another's burdens, then he finishes in verse 5 by saying, for each will have to bear his own load. So bear each other's burdens. So where you see need and where you see those who are lacking, come and help them. But don't then presume upon others. You still are called to personal responsibility to bear your own load. Well, the question then becomes, some hear that and think, exactly, preacher, bear your own load. When are you going to step up to the plate and get a real job? When are you going to stop golfing all week long? As the young man in my church growing up said. Well, if you've ever seen me golf, you would realize I don't do it very often. 
because I'm terrible at it. And so I only really need to do it once a year to get the reminder of just how bad I am at it. So trust me, I'm not spending all week golfing. But that question, I think, sometimes lurks there for folks. What, what does the preacher do? Why, why does the preacher have this special designation where he seems to live off of the gifts of others? There's even those out there who would look at someone called into preaching and think, why don't you have a real job? I, I recently had a conversation with someone talking about an individual considering going into the ministry and a father struggling with that because there was this sense of, that's not real work. You, you should be earning your own money. Well, Paul draws a very logical conclusion here in the text. A community in step with the Spirit, a community under the sway of the Spirit, will want to be nourished by the words of the Spirit. That's what he's showing us. Paul instructs the church to support its teachers materially, which is to say, to provide the food and the money, whatever goods, whatever good things are appropriate for them. Now, he's not saying support them extravagantly. So, if a pastor is driving a Bentley, your church budget's probably a little bit out of whack. If he lives in a gated community on the 18th hole of the nicest, most exclusive country club in town, you probably need to look at how much you're providing for the needs of your pastor, or what your pastor thinks his needs are. But people who are fed by the word should take responsibility, Paul says, to ensure that the teacher of the word is fed. Does that make sense? To ensure that the teacher can afford to live in the community where the faithful live. So there's a helpful piece there where a church should consider as it provides for those called to teach it, that they provide enough that those teachers can live in the midst of the community comfortably, that they don't lack. So when you think of a pastor maybe serving in a very rural location where the cost of living is very low, the expectation for what it looks like to provide for that pastor will be different than what it looks like to provide for Tim Keller, who lives in the middle of Manhattan in New York City. That's a different location with a different cost of living. He has different needs. But the faithful are called to give mind to that. And the reason is simple. Paul's underscoring with this the importance of the pastoral office. Now, this is sort of a weird text to preach from. And if it wasn't for a commitment to expository preaching and preaching systematically through books of the Bible, I would never go here. So you wouldn't hear this message on the need to financially support your pastors. But because we're committed to preaching expositorily and systematically through books of the Bible, here we are. And it is God's word. And so we trust that it is God's will for us to hear this. And here's Paul's point. The pastoral office is significant. And specifically, the aspect of the pastoral office that pertains to teaching. Now, a few things should be obvious from this verse in Galatians about why that is the case. First, teaching itself is simply important, even though it gets maligned a lot today. A commitment to biblical expository preaching is not the kind of thing that you see a lot of articles on in relevant magazines. It's not cutting edge. It's not in vogue. You're not creating this really new, incredible, insightful ministry tool that's going to make your church just explode in numbers. You know what this pastor does? He preaches from the Bible. You ever heard of that before? You don't, you don't get the credit for being the guy who came up with that one. But that's a dangerous error to think that it's not significant and not important. And we don't need to look really any further than Galatia, do we? Bad teaching? False teaching? That 
that's deadly stuff. That's stuff that doesn't just tear apart churches. It leads people into error. It leads people into such error that it puts eternity at stake. So, yeah, teaching is important. And false teaching is eternally deadly stuff. Now, the other thing I think Paul is highlighting here is that teaching is also hard work. And, and hear me say these things not with the intention of patting myself on the back. I'm trying to draw of the text why Paul is highlighting the call to sow into faithful teachers, to provide for them. Well, part of it is it's hard work to draw out God's truth from the text, to bring that to bear, to lay God's truth upon the hearts of God's people, to lay the claim of the text upon God's people so that they want to be changed by it, so that they live in light of it, so that they see God more clearly. It's not a one-hour process. It's not a wake up on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock and type up a few words. So because it's important and because it's time-consuming, Paul says churches should provide for their teachers, should provide for them so that they're freed up from other labors so that they can devote themselves to the important life-sustaining work of teaching. Listen to how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 9. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? And who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Here's his point in verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple services get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, shortly after that, Paul basically says, and I've given up that right, because I want no stumbling block for the gospel. But he's careful to maintain this is God's ordained purpose and calling for the church, that they would provide for those who have been set aside by the body to proclaim truth, to teach them, to nourish them on the word of God. Verse 14 captures the significance of sowing into good teachers well. Those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. We really see this historically, the truth of this coming to light in the Reformation. Coming in out of a day and age where preaching was seldomly held up as important in the church, was rarely actually done in a language where the people could understand what was being said, there was a starving malnourished body of Christ. And the reformers saw this. And the Reformation rescued the church from a worship that was made up of smells and bells and imagery. So where medieval Catholicism made the doctrine of transubstantiation the center point of worship, so the doctrine that the altar is the center of worship, when when you come to the Lord's table, that's the main thing you're doing in worship, and that in the bread and in the wine... Jesus is literally physically there, where that was the heir of the medieval church. The reformers swept that aside and said, no, that's the false view. The place where Christ is physically present, where, where Christ is present in the midst of his people, that happens, the reformers said, in preaching. As Bullinger put it in the second Helvetic Confession, Listen to this. This is pretty strong words. The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. You ever read stuff by the Reformers like that? The preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Now, this high doctrine of preaching requires not a high view of preachers, 
it requires a robust view of the Holy Spirit. Preaching, the Reformers said, was God speak. This doesn't mean it's objective truth in the same way as Scripture. It doesn't mean it's inerrant or it's infallible. What it means is that God has ordained to feed and sustain and protect His sheep through the faithful preaching of the Word. And to view Scripture like this is to hold the highest view of the Holy Spirit. That in preaching, God is actively speaking and pushing truth into the souls and hearts of His people. Preaching is important because when it is built upon the Word of God, it is the Spirit's ordained means of grace to us. This is what Luther said. Let us then consider it certain and firmly established that the soul can do without anything except the Word of God. And that where the Word of God is missing, there is no help at all for the soul. If it has the Word of God, it is rich and lacks nothing, since it is the Word of life, truth, light, peace, righteousness, salvation, joy, liberty, wisdom, power, grace, glory, and every incalculable blessing. On the other hand, there is no more terrible disaster with which the wrath of God can afflict men than a famine of the hearing, the preaching, of His Word. As he says in Amos 8.11. To preach Christ, Luther says, means to feed the soul, to make it righteous, to set it free and save it, providing the soul believes the preaching. So Paul says, you want to be a community in step with the Spirit? So into faithful teachers. But he also instructs Galatians and Providence with this. You want to be a community in step with the Spirit? Then you need to understand this concept of reaping what you sow, which means you have to understand that you are called to sow carefully. That's our second point. Community in step with the Spirit. Community seeking to be careful and understanding that it reaps what it sows will sow carefully. He says this in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For Whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. You reap what you sow. That's the truth again and again coming to us in this text. In other words, really simply, you plant corn, don't expect to get wheat in the fall. It doesn't work like that. If you plant soybeans, you're not going to go out and harvest alfalfa. What you sow, that's what you're going to reap. The only place this isn't true is in my backyard, where I planted grass and I got weeds. That's the only place in the entire universe where this truth doesn't happen. That's the truth we see. This truism of the fields covers all of life. Job 4.8 As I have seen, those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. Proverbs 22.8 Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity. Hosea 10.12 Sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. God has ordained the world in such a way that our actions have consequences. Our actions inevitably produce consequences and will be held responsible for those consequences. So, the implication that Paul is showing us is this. Sow carefully, because what you sow now, you will reap later. 
when Paul says, don't be deceived, he's recognizing there's a time lapse between sowing and reaping. You don't plant something and a day later see the consequences, right? The, there's, there's the flower. I planted it yesterday and now it's in full bloom. No, you plant it and you water and you wait. And then it blooms. So when he says, don't be deceived, he's saying this waiting period where you're sowing something and the reaping isn't happening, that can lead people into a false sense of security. I'm doing evil. Nothing's happening. Maybe I'm getting away with it. Or I see others doing evil. And they're prospering. And that can tempt you to think, why do I refrain from those same types of temptation? They prosper. Why don't I pursue the same thing? Don't be deceived, Paul says. God is not mocked. Which is to say, His grace is not to be assumed upon. Just because He's slow to anger doesn't mean that there won't be a day where His anger is shown. Here's what I mean. All this talk about freedom in Christ that believers experience, and Paul's been highlighting that in Galatians, hasn't he? We've seen that again and again, the nature of the gospel and the freedom and the liberty that believers know in it. Paul's showing us it's wrong to use that freedom for license. Don't sow carelessly into the flesh. Just to say, don't give yourselves over to behavior and actions that do not align with the gospel you claim to embrace. Just because no destruction immediately befalls you, don't think you're getting away with it. Don't think you'll have sufficient time to repent later. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Actions have consequences. How we live now determines our future. You flirt with the flesh, and you'll become hardened to sin, and you will reap corruption. I love how the NIV puts this. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, from that nature, will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. The old slogan is true. Sow a thought, reap an act. Sow an act, reap a habit. Sow a habit, reap a character. Reap a character, sow a character, reap a destiny. Your salvation is at stake in how you live. Now, what does that mean in the context of Galatians, where we've said we're not justified by our works, right? Well, it's not saying you're saved by your good deeds. The text is not just talking about sanctification either, though. Does that make sense? The text isn't saying, Paul isn't saying here, you will be saved by the good deeds that you do. But he's also not specifically only addressing sanctification. Here's what he's doing. Whatever you sow, you will reap. Either corruption, destruction as the NIV puts it, so read judgment, or eternal life. You can think of it this way. God warns us like this because he knows we sow from our hearts. We sow from our hearts. You don't claim faith in Christ and then sow to your own flesh. You reap what you sow and you sow from the disposition of your heart. And this is what Galatians 5.19 says. This is what it looks like to sow to the flesh. 
Now the works of the flesh, those things that you might sow to if you're tempted to deceive and mock God, they're evident. Sexual immorality and impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Very similar to our text this morning, he says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. A.K.A. they will reap destruction. Consider what John Stott says about this. Every time we allow our mind to harbor a grudge, nurse a grievance, entertain an impure fantasy, or wallow in self-pity, we are sowing to the flesh. Every time we linger in bad company, whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist, every time we lie in bed when we ought to be up and praying, every time we read pornographic literature, every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we are sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. Some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they do not reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. And what and where we sow speaks to the disposition of your heart. So sow carefully. Also, sow strategically. Knowing what we know from this text and from life, that you will reap what you sow, we need to sow carefully, and we also want to sow strategically. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. The context of reaping clearly has eternity in view here. So that's why we're saying it's not just about sanctification. It's not just talking about temporal blessings either. It's not just saying, if you sow the right stuff, you're going to reap a really good life now. There's churches and, and guys on TV and really popular books that say just that. You sow the right stuff, you you believe, and today, tomorrow, next week, you're going to be blessed. It's not what Paul's saying here. He, he's not promising you that. I was sitting in a hotel room a couple weeks ago, watching... This is kind of a sad form of entertainment. Sometimes I turn on those channels just to kind of get a chuckle, shake my head. And there was a guy on there, I'm not lying to you, who was selling faith seeds. And it was this bag of seeds. And it was expensive. I mean, it was like a hundred some dollars for this bag of seeds. And you had to go take these faith seeds and go plant them in your backyard. And you had to pray over the faith seeds and plant them in your backyard. And then if you planted them, and if you prayed enough, as those faith seeds grew, you would get whatever it is you prayed for. It's just sowing and reaping, man. You sow, you're going to reap. You buy my faith seeds, and I promise you will reap whatever it is you want. And then he had this really insightful moment. This is a little bit off the notes, but it's kind of funny. This really insightful moment where he said, and I just have a sense that someone watching somebody who's watching, you're having trouble selling your house. There's something with real estate and, and you're trying to sell your home and it's, it's hard in this market. And I sense it. And I'm like, wow, 
this guy's really going out on a limb here. Somebody in this market is having trouble selling a home. Somebody in this market's upside down. Whoa, I better buy this guy's seeds. That kind of stuff is out there. Oh, yeah, you sow, and you'll get the promotion. You sow, and your loved one will be healed. You sow, and life will be happy. The man who wrote this letter did a lot of sowing. He did a lot of sowing. He preached the gospel faithfully. He gave and he gave and he gave. And what he reaped in this life was imprisonment and persecution and trial and hardship and ultimately execution at the hands of the Roman government. He's not telling you you'll reap now. He's promising you. You will reap in eternity. Paul's exhortation is that we'd sow into the kingdom. Strategic sowing means sowing according to the Spirit. Broadly speaking, it means sowing where the Spirit leads. But that's not an utterly subjective process. Sowing is like walking and being led by the Spirit. Ultimately, it's about obeying the Spirit's instructions for holy living. It's about sowing the seed that comes from the Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, take that list to your financial advisor and see what he says about it. This is where I would like to invest this year. I want to invest in patience and faithfulness and self-control. And I want to do all of my investing in that direction. He's going to give you a strange look. These aren't exactly tangible things, are they? And while we should sow strategically, I think the Bible also calls us to sow recklessly. I think the Bible calls us to sow recklessly. Not to spend a couple hundred dollars on a bogus bag of seeds from a false teacher on the television. To really sow things like love and kindness and goodness and gentleness and the rest often involves risk. Those aren't safe things to do. There's no guarantee that the one you're serving will serve you in return. There's no guarantee that the one you're serving won't take advantage of your service. There's no guarantee that the one you're loving isn't going to turn around and abuse that love. Bottom line, we're surrounded by a world of people sowing to the flesh. And so the return on investment might be really rough in the short term. Believers know hardships and trials and persecutions in this world, but in the face of them, the Spirit calls us to sow all the more recklessly for eternity. Serving without expecting service in return. Loving even those least worthy of love. Even your enemies. I love how G.K. Chesterton puts this. The Bible tells us to love our enemies and also to, lo- to love our neighbors. Probably because generally these are the same people. <laughs> so yes, even love that neighbor down the street that just does things and you know he does them to irk you. You've asked him not to do that and now he does it flagrantly to stick it in your craw. Yeah. So, 
love, knowing it might get abused in return. So strategically, invest wisely. Consider where you will get the most gain and then aggressively sow there. But don't sow safely. I think the Bible calls us to sow strategically and recklessly. Put it this way. Humanly speaking, which is to say, here and now, heaven is not a safe investment. Heaven's not a safe investment, and this is what I mean by that. If by safe, you're trying to avoid risk and avoid hardship. Paul is essentially saying, don't diversify your investments. Don't hedge your bets. A little sown to the Spirit, a little sown to the flesh, a little sown to the kingdom, a little sown here and now. That's not what Paul's calling us to do. He's calling us to go all in in sowing for the kingdom and for the sake of the gospel. He doesn't want us to be stupid with how we invest our time and our energies and our money. And he definitely has money in view here. I don't think he's narrowing it exclusively to money. I think the text does broaden it more than that. But I think you could say there's a priority to money given the nature that he started out by saying you need to financially support the teachers. In other words, you need to financially support the work of the kingdom in your community. So I think he's broadly saying so, and then drawing specific example to so, and so financially. The appearance of wisdom in this world is that you put your money in places where it will be safe and grow and provide a return for investment. There's usually a balance, right? What appears to have the greatest potential for growth is usually the riskiest. Right? Oh man, this, this, this stock, in the next year, this thing might, might be worth ten times what it is now. But it also might be worth nothing. It's a risk. Are you going to invest it? Well, it's no different in sowing to the spirit and the flesh when we think temporally, when we think about life now. On the surface, the flesh often looks like the safest return. Serve little. Protect your own interests first. Give little. Love little. Sacrifice little. Make sure you're not vulnerable. Make sure you're not at risk. Sowing to the Spirit is much more radical. Your financial advisors will consider it foolish. Dave Ramsey might not approve. It leaves you vulnerable. I'm looking at your budget here, and it says you're giving away 10%. It says you're giving away 15%. Well, actually, last year was 15%, and this year I want to make it 30 Financial advisors don't swallow that pill well. Church in Macedonia, in the midst of affliction and their own great need, sowed recklessly like that. Paul says the reason they did it is because they were overwhelmed with gratitude as they considered the gospel and God's reckless sowing into them in Jesus Christ. Without spirit-empowered faith, no one attempts that. But the eschatological reward, the reward in heaven, the reward when Christ returns, is great. But remember this. 
Earth's treasures have a terrible currency exchange in heaven. They're really sweet toys now. But they don't mean diddly for eternity. Application. It's Father's Day. Dads, train your children how to sow carefully and how to sow especially strategically. There's a calling of dads to teach children, to teach young people, to teach those that God has gifted them with, to raise up in the fear and knowledge of the Lord, that that it is significant, that it is a holy thing, that it is a spirit-empowered thing to sow strategically into the kingdom, even at great sacrifice to yourself. That's what a godly father does. He trains up his children to understand. Here's your allowance. Here's ten bucks. You should probably give a dollar. Would you want to give more? What could we give that to? He walks with his children and leads them as he puts money in the offering plate to explain to his kids what they're giving that to. When he tells the kids, we can't get you the brand new $120 pair of basketball shoes for basketball season this year, we're going to have to get the cheaper pair. He doesn't just say, and that's just the way it is, son. I'm real sorry, but that's just how it's going to be. You can't get a new car. I didn't have a new car. I had to work for one. That's just how it is. I know you want to go there on vacation, but we can't. We're going camping in Grandma's backyard. That's just the way it is this year. No. He says, son, I know you want those Air Jordans, and they're beautiful shoes, man. I want them too. But we're making sacrifices for the sake of the kingdom. We're sowing for eternity. We want to give intentionally and with priority and with sacrifice to God's work that Christ might be glorified. And you're not going to have the coolest shoes on the basketball court. You might have to settle for a used car. We can't go to Timbuktu this year. But when Christ returns, all of that sowing will have a sweet, sweet harvest. And dads, sow into them. Don't just teach them how to sow. Sow into them. There can be an unfortunate misunderstanding. And I think Paul is warning us against this when he says, don't be deceived. God is not mocked. That just says, you know what? Grace is free. The gospel is great. God is sovereign. Take my hands off the wheel. Whatever's going to happen is going to happen. God's sovereign over it. God's in control. I don't have to be as intentional as I should be in raising my kids because God's ordained whether they'll love Him or not, whether they'll respond to the gospel or not. I trust God implicitly, so I'm just trusting that to God. That's not what Paul's talking about here. He's saying, no, you reap what you sow. Dads, you are responsible to sow into your children to raise them up, to know the Word, to love the Word, to pray with them, to worship with them, to help them to see your passion and your affection for Jesus. Hopefully to help them to see that you love Jesus more than anything else. And so into them, 
that you might see before you die the reaping of their faith. That you might rejoice in eternity together. Finally, briefly, so persistently. So, so, for so, so persistently. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap, if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So, sowing strategically, Paul is saying, requires a certain kind of persistence and patience. It doesn't mean sowing is a one-time deal. You plant, then you walk away, and you come back and you reap, right? No. Anybody who's ever grown up on a farm or spent any time on a farm or cultivated a garden knows sowing is just the first step. There's watering and, and cultivating and caring for that ground. The faithful sower is constantly laboring with his eyes on the harvest. I grew up in Iowa. Both my grandpas are farmers. And my mom's dad, so my grandpa on my mom's side, he mostly farmed corn and soybeans. And if you've ever had the experience of having close relationship with someone who's grown soybeans, maybe you've had the not-so-great experience of walking beans. And that doesn't sound so bad. It kind of sounds weird, actually. Walking beans. What does it look like to walk beans? Well, this is what it looks like. You have hundreds and hundreds of acres of field filled with beans. And you get to walk up and down the rows of beans, killing all the weeds you see. In the heat. In the humidity. Now, sometimes it was more fun than others. Sometimes he would give us these really sweet machetes. And we'd get to walk up and down. And if it was a little further along in the summer and the, the corn or the milkweed was a little bit longer, we'd get to hack it to death. Now, that's a little bit more fun for a 13-year-old boy. Who doesn't like carrying a machete? You can imagine you're Indiana Jones and things of that nature while you're walking beans in the heat. I was a Roman legionnaire at times. Other times, you're just walking along with a spray bottle filled with chemicals. Spraying. Walking. Sweating. Walking. Sweating. But I will never forget, late in August, early in September, when it was getting time, the harvest was getting closer, driving down the road that went to my grandpa's house, and him pointing out, look at the fields over there. Those are our fields. You see how clean they are? See how well see how well kept? See the lack of weeds? Now look over here. And across the road there's a farm with soybeans and weeds everywhere. A farmer who thought sowing just meant planting. Didn't require persistence. Didn't require sweat. And when that farmer went to reap he wouldn't have the same kind of harvest that my grandpa did. Well, that's illustrative for us. We're called to be watchful for opportunities to serve where needs arise. But we're also called to be careful to prioritize the household of faith in that and to do it persistently. Our time and our resources are limited. So don't avoid doing good to others, but especially prioritize doing good to fellow believers, doing good to those in your local context, in your local church here at Providence. And we're warned to not grow weary of doing good because it can be just that. Wearying. Key part, Paul says, in due season we will reap. The faithful sower is the persistent and patient sower. 
He's mindful of every opportunity to sow. Ultimately, that requires much faith. That's not an easy road. The reward that we see here is for the one who sows until the end. That's what Paul's talking about. Don't grow weary. He says specifically, For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. The one who starts well but doesn't finish will not reap. I think this brings us full circle to the importance of sowing into the kingdom and sowing into teaching. The word preached is meant to stir up persevering faith. Week by week by week. So a community in step with the Spirit supports teachers financially because that community earnestly longs for the Spirit to illuminate Christ in their midst. They understand that the God-speak of preaching happens through toil, effort, prayer, and humble agonizing over the text. And so a community in step with the Spirit groans for the Spirit to do His work as divine revealer and magnifier of Christ in their midst through the preaching of the Word. These communities understand the constant threat of falsehood, the never-ceasing seduction of secular thought, and they perceive the daily temptation to drift from Jesus and the need to have renewed faith in doing good and in sowing for eternity. And so these communities groan. They pant as the deer. And that's not a pleasant image. A deer pants painfully, breathing and gasping for water. These communities breathe and gasp for God to refresh them with the living water of Christ through the preaching and teaching of the Word. They don't want cheap thrills on Sunday morning. They don't want mere emotional ecstasy. They love the fellowship and the singing and the prayer that are meant to happen when they gather, but they understand that these bear fruit in proportion to their grounding in the truth. And so they long for the word preached because they long for the Spirit to make Christ more precious, more glorious, and more satisfying than anything else. And when they see a brother or a sister who doesn't understand the importance of preaching, they explain it. When they see a brother or sister who's, who's flippant with their need to hear the word of God proclaimed in the power of the Spirit, they gently restore, because that is a transgression. All of this happens only when the teaching of the Word is protected and promoted and provided for by the church. So, I say this because the Word of God says it, and not for selfish gain. Sow into your teachers. Sow into the kingdom. It fulfills the law of Christ. It bears burdens. It bears your pastor's burdens. So that they can deliver God's words. Conclude with this quote by Fred Calvin one of those reformers who held high the importance of preaching. So then, if we earnestly desire that God should be honored and served, and that our Lord should have his royal seat among us peaceably, to reign in the midst of us, if we are his people and are under his protection, if we covet to be built up in him, and to be joined to him, and to be steadfast in him to the end, to reap the right harvest, to be short if we desire our salvation, we must learn to be humble learners in receiving the doctrine of the gospel and in hearkening to the pastors that are sent to us 
as if Jesus Christ spoke to us himself in his own person, assuring ourselves that he will acknowledge the obedience and submission of our faith when we listen to the mortal, mortal men to whom he has given that charge. Would you bow your heads? Lord, it is with fear and trembling that I recognize the holy responsibility and calling that you have given to pastors. But Lord, it is with great expectation, massive hope, that I eagerly long to see your spirit working through the word preached at Providence that I expect because your word promises it and your word is true. And because your word promises it, you send the Spirit in all your omnipotent power to make it happen and to bring it to effect in your people, that your word would return, that your people would be stirred up and that there would be gospel kingdom sowing at Providence. That there would be serving, that there would be loving, that there would be the bearing of burdens, that there would be sacrifice that there would be community, that there would be accountability, that there would be fellowship, that there would be prayer. There would be all the things you call us to in sowing to the Spirit, that all those fruits of the Spirit would be present here, and that you would continually stir them up through our commitment to preaching your words, and that we would have unshakable confidence, not in any man who stands behind a pulpit with his voice amplified, but that we would have unshakable eternal confidence in the power of your spirit to speak your words to us in preaching. So God, would you do that? Would you change us by it? And would you continually and increasingly stir up a desire to hear your word and to do your word? That we might love Jesus with deeper satisfaction. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.